All right, the book of Jude, and as you know, we've been going through it slowly, and we're tonight, we're going to look specifically at verses 14 and 15. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for this time that we have together, and even though at this point it's a shorter amount of time, we pray that you just make these things known to us, and real to us, and applicable to us as we read your word tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a man who was very prominent in the Christian world. In fact, he was here at this church one Thursday night. And he actually spent a week giving a series of lectures, and we were blessed to have him, Dr. Walter Martin. Walter Martin was one of the first people who ever wrote any material at all for the Christian world on how to defend the faith. And he spoke a lot about what is a cult, what is not a cult. He spoke about Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Christian scientists, and he went through all of the gamut of Christian cults to show you the difference of real biblical Christianity and aberrant teaching. He was gifted at it, and we were just excited to have him here. I grew very close to him, and I enjoyed his company. Uh, The night I picked him up and brought him over to the church, I was talking about the cults, and he was telling me about some of the uh, death threats that he had received from the Mormon church almost weekly for the last several years because he told people the truth about them and he uncovered their own documents. And uh, He was just telling me all this stuff and I'm thinking, man, Dr. Martin, we just really appreciate your ministry. And he turned to me and he said, let me tell you something. The line of work that I am defending the faith and telling the church about cults is a cesspool you don't want to swim in unless God has called you to do it. He said, this is tough, what I do. It puts a heavy strain on the family and uh, the kind of security that I have around. And it's, it's, it, it, Oftentimes, you're accused, even by the church, of being unloving, even by Christian networks. In fact, when Walter Martin finally went to heaven, he had an artery problem, and uh, he went to heaven and... I'll never forget a Christian television network that I will keep anonymous tonight, but broadcast coast-to-coast all over the world, said, (laughs) said, God killed Walter Martin because he was coming out against the church. They weren't referring to the cults, though. They were referring to the heretical teaching of the faith movement, the name-it-and-claim-it movement. I call it the blab-it-and-grab-it movement. (laughs) This domino effect of selfish living, a la my own theology. One time when Dr. Martin was on that television show, the owners of the... Network. This is the last time, by the way, he was on. Accused him of being unloving by bringing these things to the surface of the Christian church. It's just causing confusion and you're splitting the church, splitting the brethren, and you're just so unloving. If Jesus were here, he wouldn't say any of these kinds of things. Jesus was so loving. And you're telling the people these facts and... and uh, You're just not doing it in a loving fashion. So in a very calm tone, Dr. Martin said, 
who was incarnate love? And she said, Jesus. He said, all right, let me quote to you incarnate love speaking. And he quoted Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you brood of vipers. When you make a proselyte, you make him a twofold child of hell more than yourselves. Woe unto you, hypocrites. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're like whitewashed tombs. And just went on and on. And the co-host, who was a gal, a woman, said, Couldn't you smile when you say that? (laughs) Now that's the kind of thinking that those who dare to tell the truth which incidentally is the most loving thing you can do to a person, instead of patting him on the back and letting him swallow any poison. That's the kind of stuff that you'll come up against. A couple years ago, two books were written by a man named Dave Hunt. One was called The Seduction of Christianity. The other was called Beyond Seduction. Now, the little bit that I know of Dave personally, he's a very gentle-spirited man. He's not a vindictive man, and he's quick even to take correction when it can be shown to him in the Scripture. He's a very thorough researcher even. He wrote The Seduction of Christianity, and they called him a heretic hunter and dividing the body and... Churches were even warned never to read this book. And anytime somebody tells me never to read a book, first thing I'm going to do is read the book. I figure I'm big enough, I'm a grown-up, I can make my own discernment. I thought, what a fabulous book. Jude must have felt that way. You know, there are parts of the Bible that you just love to read. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'm meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest to your souls. But then there's other portions of Scripture, and I've said this over again in Jude as we've gone through it. It's just, it's not the most comforting. It's an alarm clock. It wakes us up. Jude must have felt, and I'm sure that there were people in the early church who said, Jude, couldn't you smile when you say that? Jude, you're dividing the church. Just pat people on the back and tell them to turn their scars into stars and to be nice to nice people because it's nice to be nice. That's what people want to hear. Pat them on the back. Give them a pep talk. Now, we're going to zero in on a couple verses, I hope, tonight. But let's just, for the sake, since I've been away for a while, look at a couple of these verses. The particular one to remind ourselves of is verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, or literally put up a good fight for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, long ago who were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our Lord into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives a few examples of them. Look at verse 8 in the description. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Look at verse 11. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, 
run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You think he was smiling when he wrote that? His heart was broken because he knew that the church at the time that he wrote that, was being infiltrated by crooks, quacks, who said that they were Christians. We've been speaking about them on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. Gnostics. Gnostics comes from the Greek word gnosis. They were know-it-alls. They knew everything. And they paraded themselves as being spiritually superior to everybody else. And the church started to feel confused and condemned by them. But Jude and John go on to say that these men are false teachers, false prophets. And over and over again, he comes up with a theme, gets heavier and heavier. And he speaks about their judgment that we just read about. And now in verse 14, he quotes Enoch in speaking about their future judgment. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them. Now, just as we read this, notice how many times he uses that word, ungodly. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This guy is heavy duty. He is like the Walter Martin or the Hank Hanegraaff of the early church. Hank Hanegraaff is the guy who took over for Walter Martin. I heard a few people say, I don't know who he is, but since Walter went to heaven, Hank has taken his place in earth. And the same owners of these networks are saying of Hank, better watch out, God's going to kill you like he killed Walter. But thank God for his boldness He's writing a book, should have been out already, but it's soon to come out this year. And uh, when it does, don't worry, I'll make mention of it. And uh, it's in a very loving way, by the way, just as a preview, in a very loving way, because I've spent a lot of time with Hank talking about this personally with him. In a very loving but a theologically thorough way, he's informing the church of teachings by people. He's quoting the people at length in their own messages. He has nothing personally to say about people, just the teaching that is going on. And of course, anytime you do that, people say you're dividing the body. It's not loving. You've got to understand that it's not an attack against the people. It's an attack against the teaching. When we talk about Jehovah Witnesses, we love them. We hate their teaching. We love Mormons. We hate their teaching. And the Bible calls these things, in the Bible's own words, damnable heresies. So we should listen to it. The judgment is spoken about in these verses. And notice that Jude quotes a fellow by the name of Enoch. Now, as you know, Enoch was a man who in his generation was very godly. He walked with God, the scripture says. And he's spoken about three times in the scripture. 
Let me take you back to the book of Genesis. I'll just read it to you for the saving of time. A little history about this man, Enoch. It says, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years. He begot sons and daughters. Enoch lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now that was during a time, right before the flood, where it says God saw that the Wickedness of man was great on the earth, and the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually, incessantly. In the midst of a wicked world, there was a guy named Enoch who was God's rep. And you got to understand, no matter how bad the world gets, no, how, no matter how many ungodly laws are passed, God always has his reps. God always has his light bearers to shine light in the midst of dark places. And in the Old Testament during that time, Enoch was one of them. What's interesting is that Jude quotes from Enoch. We have no such record of this quote in the scripture. Jude is in fact quoting a non-scriptural source, an apocryphal book. Now I'd like to develop what that is, but Sunday night I will do that when we get into our message on Matthew. It's a book that is not a scriptural book. Uh, The book of Enoch, along with many of these apocryphal, or in this case, pseudepigraphical books, were legends that were written by a host of different people, but given famous names to draw attention to them. Enoch was one of them, though some scholars believe that Enoch indeed wrote it. We don't really know. The fact is, is that Jude is drawing from this source and quoting a non-scriptural book to make a point. You think, Jude, you can't do that. And, you know, people get all messed up then on inspiration. You've got to understand that Even Paul the Apostle did stuff like that. When he was in Athens, he quoted some of the Greek poets. For as it is said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting Epimenides, the Greek. But he's using a quote of one that was familiar to them to bring out an important spiritual point that happened to be true in reference to God. And so he's doing that with the book of Enoch. It doesn't mean that he's saying the book of Enoch was inspired because it's not. Doesn't mean that it's authoritative because it's not. He's drawing it in to emphasize a point, and it happened to be that what he quotes, because it is in the canon of Scripture, he's showing that even Enoch, way, way back in the Old Testament, prophesied of future judgment, prophesied of the times that would come. Um, now look at Enoch's message. Let's just look at it. In verse 14, right in the middle, it says, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. What a thing to say way back before the flood. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, and so forth. It's possible that Enoch was referring to the near future judgment of the flood, and that prophecy, though it had a near fulfillment, if you're familiar with Old Testament prophecy, this is pretty common. It had a near fulfillment, and yet at the same time, it had a further fulfillment in the future, right? A couple interesting things about this guy named Enoch. 
He had a son whom he named Methuselah. Now, Methuselah is known even by non-Christians. He's the oldest guy who ever lived, 969 years. If you have problems with that kind of aging, you might want to get our Genesis tapes because we talk all about the uh, shroud of clouds that covered the earth that filtered out short-wavelength radiation and how men lived longer in those days. And there's some scientific research that lends itself to the credibility of these being literal years. But anyway, Methuselah has an interesting meaning in his name. And as you know, in the Old Testament especially, at the very beginning, when people would name their kids, they would name them very significantly. They just didn't go with the names of the the trends of the days. Hey, you know, uh, uh, Aaron or John, that's a kind of an in name. Let's start naming people um, names of uh, famous people or first ladies or presidents or whatever. It was something that was spiritually significant. Methuselah comes from two Hebrew words. The first one, the first part of uh, uh, Mathu, or no, no, anyway, something like that, means to die. Shalek, which is the second root, means to send forth. And the name literally means, when he is dead, it shall be sent. The interesting thing about Methuselah, he died the exact year of the flood, if you look at it in the scripture. In fact, According to tradition of the Jews, he died seven days before the flood. When he is dead, it shall be sent. When he died, the flood was sent as judgment upon the world for their sins. It could be that when he was born, because the scripture says that he began to walk with God after the birth of his son, that God gave him that revelation of future judgment and it caused him an awakening in his heart. He began to walk closely with God and his name of his son was a prophecy of the future. When he is dead, it shall be sent. Again, another interesting thing is that he lived to be the longest of any recorded human in the scripture, 969 years, which is a beautiful picture of grace. God let that period last a long time and gave people a long time to repent. 969 years. And finally after that, God saw that the world was wicked and he judged them. Now, according to Enoch, and Jude quotes him in these verses, a couple things to notice about the coming judgment. Number one, it will be done personally. The Lord will come back. The Lord will come with ten thousands of his saints. He's not going to send somebody to do it for him. He's not going to send a flood or a famine. He himself will personally judge. Secondly, notice at the verse, the saints will be with him. He comes with ten thousands of his saints. In other words, as we know from the New Testament, when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to judge, the church will be with him. For the book of Colossians says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you shall also appear with him in glory. First Thessalonians, Paul writes, May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his saints. And here's one that's always caused me to smile a little bit when Paul wrote, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And do you not know that we will judge angels? I can't help but just laugh a little bit thinking of what the angels might think about that prospect, especially as they look at our lives. Thinking, oh, come on. They're going to judge us? Look at them. They can't even get it together themselves. But we're going to judge the angels. Third thing to notice in verse uh, 14 and 15 is that it will be universal. He will execute judgment 
on all, all those who are ungodly. And then finally, it will be just and righteous. And that's an important facet I want you to walk away with. When we think about future judgment, a lot of people, even in the church, get a little bit leery of that teaching. They don't like to hear about it. They don't even like to hear about the idea of hell, especially. Many Christians just say, don't talk to me about that. I don't know how I believe in that or if I do. But listen, Jesus spoke more about hell than any single person in Old or New Testament. Incarnate love warned people about future judgment. And it says that he will convict, in this verse, all who are ungodly. In other words, he will be able to literally convince them of their ungodliness. His arguments will be very convincing. When God judges... There will be no one who will stand by with their arms folded and go, Hey, no, wait a minute, I object. That's not fair. In fact, listen to what the Bible says about the future judgment in the tribulation when the third bowl of wrath is poured out upon the springs of water and the waters of the earth. It says, Then I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments. You who are, who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then I heard another from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments. Now, keep a little marker here perhaps. Maybe you probably don't even need to the time we have left. But turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 24 for just a moment. Let's look at what Jesus himself said, speaking about the future judgment when he comes again to this earth. Matthew chapter 24. You've got to understand as you go through these verses, this is not a maybe, this is a will be. The question is not if, it's when. Look at verse... uh, Well, let's look at verse 29. We'll just abbreviate it tonight. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. This is Jesus speaking. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. One out of every 30 verses in the Bible speak about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Seven out of ten chapters have something to do with the end times. The prophets spoke much more about the second coming than the first coming. But you know, it's interesting... So many of us know a lot about the first coming of Christ, about Bethlehem and the shepherds and the wise men and all the things that happened, but very few Christians know the wherewithal of the second coming of Christ, though it's spoken about more prolifically than the first. Dwight L. Moody was asked why he thought that Christians and people in general knew more about the first than the second coming. Listen to his answer. Dwight L. Moody, evangelist from Chicago years ago. Paul's epistles speak about the return of the Lord 50 times, and yet the church has very little to say about it. Now, I can see a reason for this. The devil does not want us to see the truth, for nothing would wake up the church so much. The moment a man takes hold of the truth that Jesus is coming again to receive his followers to himself, the world loses its hold on him. 
The church is cold and formal. May God wake it up. And I know of no better way to wake it up than to get the church to look for the return of Jesus Christ. Now that's the good part of the return. The bad part is verse 30, as we just read. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. For some people, the return of Jesus is great news. For others, it's bad news blues. Imagine what people will say as they see the Son of Man breaking through the heavens. They realize, it's real. Those weirdos were right. And then what? Time magazine years ago recorded President Ronald Reagan's belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ. They did an article on it. And the conclusion of the article, they said, when Jesus Christ eventually does break through in human history and comes back, there's going to be a lot of surprised people. That was the understatement of the century. There'll be a lot of terrified people. It says, the tribes of the earth shall mourn. Listen to what Zechariah said, speaking of the same event. They will look on me, God said, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn as one mourns for his only son. And they will say to me, what are the meanings of these wounds in your hands? And I will say, these are the wounds which I received in the house of my friends. In Revelation, John, looking forward to this event, tells us the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and even every free man hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, What's wild about this scene is that you'd expect if people really all of a sudden saw the judgment of God and they knew it was the judgment of God as evidenced by the book of Revelation, then instead of saying, okay, mountains, fall on us for God is getting us. Don't you think that instead they would just say, I'm going to repent and turn to God and cast myself upon his mercy? But you know, it's possible to harden your heart so much that you're beyond that point. In fact, the book of Revelation 14 says, And because of this, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains, and they repented not. Instead of turning to the rock of ages, they asked the rocks of the mountains to fall on them. Okay, another quick scripture before we close, and that is Matthew chapter 13. So just backtrack, turn left, go down the street, and stop at chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This is the famous kingdom parables where Jesus is telling stories and these stories refer to the future kingdom or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 13. Let's breeze through it real quickly beginning in verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. And so the servant of the owner came and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then is it that you have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. Now Jesus, as you can see, starts talking about a couple other parables. But this parable really bothers the disciples because they have to keep going back to it. Look over at verse 36. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Hey, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. You could tell that was weighing on them. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Now get this in perspective of Jude, speaking about these filthy dreamers, spots in your love feasts who had infiltrated the early church. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be in the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all those that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and there will be gnashing of teeth And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now notice that the tares are sown among the wheat. Sons of the kingdom of darkness next to sons of the kingdom of light. You know that every single church is a mixture of tares and wheat. Hopefully, if it's a healthy church, there's more wheat than tares. But it could be that even tonight, there are tares among the wheat. People who claim to walk with God, claim to have experienced God, claim to walk with Jesus Christ, but they have not surrendered their heart. It's not real. It's a religious thing. Sown next to, in the Greek word, Anamasan speaks of sowing so closely as to cause deception. We can't tell and go around and say like a little gospel Gestapo. Are you a Christian? Well, I don't think you are a Christian, therefore get out. No, hey, that's God's stuff at the end of the age. Now, when it comes to false teaching, division of the body of Christ, amoral behavior, unmoral behavior that causes The spread of sin in the church, the Bible commands that the church discriminate against that, judge that, and put those people out of the fellowship. When it comes to tares among the wheat, you can't always tell. They look so much alike. But at the end of the age, the reapers, the angels, will be able to tell and will cast them out. By the way, that's a consolation. That's a consolation. That's a consolation for the church. And even though Jude saw these people as spots in their love feast. The consolation is that one day all wickedness would be judged. You say, that's a consolation? And I've heard a lot of people get mad at God. Say, how could a God of love judge people? How could a God of love allow hell to exist? My question is, how could a God of love not? Do you ever get upset when you read the newspaper and hear about the laws that are being passed? Does it ever bother you when you read the newspaper and hear about people over in Mogadishu being killed because of the anarchy? Food being stolen from people who are dying, criminals getting away with it. Ever bother you when babies are slaughtered and criminals? You you go read on and on about the corruption. How do you think God feels looking from heaven, seeing that millions of times amplified as he sees the entire world day after day, generation after generation? 
Would God be moral and just to let all of that stuff just... It's okay, you were a product of your environment, and I'll smile while I say this so that everybody can just come in, because we're all children of God. I wouldn't serve a God like that, would you? Would you serve a God that didn't judge wickedness? I wouldn't, because you wouldn't be just and righteous. For God to be loving, God must be just. For God to be just, He must judge sin. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the message of the Bible, Old and New Testament. These are the words of Jesus Christ. There would be a separation. And the thing that I love about Jesus is that he makes it so simple. He boils it down to two. There's light and there's darkness. There's the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the devil. And there's future bliss and there's future judgment. Those are the only two options. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's not one of four places to choose from. And you pick one of the curtains. There's two places. That's what the scripture teaches. Traditions of other groups have taught other things, but the scripture teaches two places. And the testing ground is the earth. And the consolation is that the reapers in the end of the age will sift mankind according to their thoughts, their intents. What they've done with the Lord Jesus Christ is the solution for their sins. And I thank God that that judgment will be so righteous and so just, along with the angels, we'll be able to say... That's just and true, O Lord. Righteous are your judgments. Even though as you read some of them, they seem very harsh. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking of this, spoke about the tendency that people have to joke about judgment, joke about hell. Ever meet people like that? Very light about the subject of future judgment. I've met friends who go, oh, hell, hey, yeah, man, it's all my friends are, are in hell. That's where I want to go, man. And they think you're going to go, oh, you know, wince of that. Yeah, man, because I want to party in hell, man. All my friends are there. How stupid. There's no such thing as a friendship in hell. It's complete and utter torment, according to Jesus. If you don't believe the words of Jesus, then just don't call yourself a believer. Charles Spurgeon said, If there be one thing in hell worse than another, it will be seeing the saints in heaven. Oh, to think of seeing my mother in heaven while I am cast out. Husband, there is your wife in heaven and you are among the damned. And do you see your father? Your child is before the throne and you, accursed from God and from men, are in hell. Oh, the hell of hells will be to see our friends in heaven and ourselves lost. I bet you could have heard a pin drop the day he preached that in the Metropolitan Church in London. But part of the good news is that you don't have to go there. God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself there by rejecting God's solution. And then judgment is inevitable. He wants to be your Savior. He's not willing that any should perish. But if you refuse that, you're forcing God by throwing away the ability for him to save you by rejecting Christ, the only solution for your sins. You're forcing him to enter into that side of his character that is righteous and just and judge your sin instead of placing your sin on Jesus, which he wants to do. Your choice. So There was a young lawyer in New York years ago named Charles Finney. He was not a Christian. He was a young lawyer in a law office in upstate New York and Squire went to see him one afternoon. This young Finney was there, real cocky, being a young, yuppie lawyer. 
and he talked to him about the gospel. He said, Mr. Finney, what do you plan to do when you finish your course here? He said, well, I plan to hang out my shingle and practice law. The squire said, well, then what? He said, well, then I'm going to get rich. All right, well, then what? Well, then I'm going to retire. Great, well, then what? Well, then I'll die. The squire said, then what? And before Finney could say anything, the squire said, and then the judgment. And it so shook this young lawyer that he went out to the woods and he vowed to himself that he was not returned until he got peace with God. And he found himself, as he thought about his life, before the judgment bar of God, which is more serious than bringing criminals before any earthly bar. And that day he accepted Jesus Christ and Finney went on to be one of the greatest evangelists, revivalists in American history during a very dark period. Oh, what God can do when people know the truth and embrace eternity. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are just and true and we thank you for your righteous judgments, that that's as much a part of your character as the fact that you save people from it. Oh Lord, the gospel is so filled with good news and you're such a God of love and such a God of grace. And Really, that's the message for us today is that you are so loving and you save. If a man will cast himself upon the solution, a man must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, our Savior said. But Lord, the side of the good news, the flip side of the quarter, is that there is bad news for those who reject the good. And you must judge for you to be righteous. In many ways, the severity of it is difficult for us to grasp. But Jesus spoke about it so adamantly. We're just so thankful for the promises of the Savior. And we pray that if there are those tonight, number one, who don't personally know you, as they find themselves before the judgment bar of God, no matter what kind of ungodliness that they have been encountering or involved in, they would cast themselves upon the solution of the Savior and find forgiveness of sins and a restful heart, peace and joy that you promise. And then secondly, Lord, I pray that you would motivate those of us who are believers with the same motivation that you did with Charles Finney, that we would see that eternity is ever more real and more serious than here and now. May we make our decisions based upon the eternal rather than the temporal. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.